Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter on Joy 94.9, the show answering the questions you didn't even know you had. This week's guest is paediatric doctor subspecializing in neonatal medicine, Dr. Daniel Dorovich. We talk about his work at Melbourne's Royal Women's Hospital in the neonatal ICU, why he chose to specialize in paediatrics, and the very individual and playful care that is needed to do his job. This episode comes with a trigger warning, so please switch off now if this isn't for you. This episode deals with issues of extreme prematurity, high-level hospital care, and death and disability in children. Daniel and I's chat is one that is super interesting, and I really learned a lot. So if it is for you, welcome. Practicing that kind of family-centered care and baby-centered care is really what we strive for a lot in neonates. I think it's easy to say that that is best done on the parent of a 23-weeker who is racked with emotion as their child goes through a really unstable period in the NICU. But equally, I find it just as rewarding to sit on the postnatal ward with a third-time mum who has just delivered a three and a half kilo term baby who's got jaundice and explain to her and her partner, what is jaundice? How do we manage it? Why is it important that we take it seriously? Educating and reassuring and kind of assuaging any emotion that they have about that particular issue is just as rewarding to me as working in the like really pointy acute end. Both those ends of the spectrum are really great. Before we dive into our chat, here are some handy acronyms to know including NICU, which Daniel just mentioned. NICU stands for Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. So ICU is the adult one, paediatric ICU or PICU, and then neonatal ICU or NICU. And I guess the difference between NICU and PICU is that neonatal ICUs are predominantly full of premature babies, whereas paediatric ICUs, as the name suggests, can be anything from 0 to 18. Now we are equipped with some more of the lingo, let's get into it. Daniel talks more about paediatrics, neonatal medicine, and what they are. When you studied, did you study have to study specifically neonatal? Yeah, so good question. So at medical school, you get very little of either of those things. Unfortunately, medical school is designed to churn out largely adult-trained doctors because I guess that is technically the bulk of, of the patient load in kind of, if you think, percentage-wise of number of patients in the healthcare system, it's majority adults. But unfortunately for those of us who are keen on paediatrics means that we're left with very little training in children's medicine in general, and very specifically a minute amount of training in neonatal medicine. I certainly did a tiny bit of it, maybe a week's worth of placement in the neonatal IC when I was in medical school, but I think a lot of it just goes over your head because you don't really understand the complexities of all of the medicine that goes on. And so how it works in terms of your training is that once you finish medical school, you do an internship for a year at whatever hospital, whatever state you're in. And once you do your internship, you can start applying for a training program. And so I applied and got onto pediatrics in my second year out of med school. And that's when I moved to Melbourne from Perth, where I'd grew up, grown up and trained. 
And then as you move through your pediatric training, you do three years of basic training, it's called, where you rotate through a variety of specialties, including neonates. And then you sit your big scary exams, which I've thankfully gotten through. Mm-hmm. And then you can do advanced training in a subspecialty. Um, and neonatology and perinatology are the fancy names for what I'm doing. And that's that's a subspecialty within pediatrics. So how long have you been a doctor? So I've been a doctor. I graduated at the end of 2016. So I was an intern in 2017 then 2018-19. So you're still a doctor once you're an intern. So one, two, three, four, five this year. Five years. Year. And did you always want to be a doctor? No, I always did not want to be a doctor. <laughs> um, there are lots of doctors in my family. We had a whole stack of doctors in the Melbourne branch of my dad's family. And I had always thought like, and my dad's a GP and my mum was a nurse and then his practice manager for years. And I was always just like, no, not interested. Medicine is totally not for me. There's too many doctors in our family already. I'm going to do economics and I played music a lot when I was younger and entertained the idea of like being a like orchestral musician for a little bit but that was short-lived oh. as I <laughs> it became very obvious that my talent was not going to take me there <laughs> and also I didn't like it was a lifestyle that I didn't I decided wasn't really for me and I was really interested in economics at, in high school and, and particularly in later high school and then so I studied after I spent a year in Israel after after high school as many um, Jewish kids will do and then I came back and did two years of an economics arts degree I was learning Mandarin and doing macroeconomics and international relations and was going to be a diplomat or an economist or something exotic and then realized that what would actually happen was that I would be a banker and I didn't really want that and around that time I've been working at like but like I said my dad's a GP and so I'd done some work on reception for them and I had a bit of a light bulb moment while I was working on reception in his general practice that actually I'd always ignored medicine and in fact it was a great way to have a career that's an academic challenge and you get to work with people and it's financially stable and all those good things about it. And so I pivoted mid-degree into, I was very lucky to get a, a spot in undergrad med and then the rest is history. It's incredible yeah. that you come from a family of doctors and I guess <laughs> you don't want to say it, but it's almost in the blood. I know, it's a bit like that. And I think it's certainly, I mean, our extended family is... It just it's like a who's who of hospital staff members we've got like a geriatrician and a general practitioner and a psychiatrist and a radiologist and a pediatrician and a dentist and a psychologist <laughs> and a nurse midwife like we've just got kind of the full gamut and my grandpa was a pathologist we've really we cover the whole spectrum of healthcare within our family that's incredible <laughs> i mean i've seen like friends of mine who are who are very kind of commerce and business oriented you can see that it's sort of in their blood in that sense and they all are very much in that vein and they kind of talk about it around the dinner table and, and that and I guess to some extent we are the same like we all have a shared kind of understanding of healthcare and the pros and cons of working with people and the kind of vulnerability that comes along with patienthood and all of that kind of stuff and so it's nice and though I initially was very anti it's really nice to have that shared understanding also just that when I say I can't come, I'm on night shift, or I'm sorry, like I had to stay at work for another three hours unexpectedly, and you miss a family gathering, everyone gets it, because like, they get it, whereas non-medical people often really don't get it. You studied one thing, totally pivoted, finally accepted your destiny, (laughs) (laughs) and then you studied medicine. When did the realisation that you wanted to be in paediatrics happen, and why did that happen? Uh, That was easy. Some people know from the beginning what they want to do. 
I didn't. And I was kind of you, your first few years of pre-clinical medicine, it's called, where you're doing more like lectures and all of that kind of stuff. I didn't have really an idea of what I wanted and was just interested to see different rotations and see if anything popped out. And then as soon as I did a peds rotation, like the second day, I was like, ah, okay, this will do. <laughs> like I never want to see an old person with a UTI or delirium <laughs> or a heart attack ever again. I will happily see kids with gastro and uh, cough for the rest of my career. <laughs> Why do you think that that is? Why do you I think people are drawn to it? That's a great question. And pediatrics, it's just one of those things that people really very straight away either love or hate. It's a very polarizing specialty because, like I said, you're sort of trained in medicine to think in a very adult medicine way. And pediatrics, the medicine, the conditions, the pathology is completely different. The way you interact with your patients is very different. You have to be able to play. It's not just asking questions and physically examining someone, it's about, well, this two-year-old isn't going to let me poke their tummy. Like, they won't let me unless I get their trust. And how do I gain the trust of a two-year-old? You play with them. Like, you have to learn how to interact in a way that enables you to get what you want out of the patient. And so, constructive play is a huge part of what you do in pediatrics. And it's really, not only is it important to build rapport with your, the child that you're examining, but also it tells you a lot. Here, Daniel talks about a specific example to explain what he means by constructive play and how it's used in his work. So, for example, when you think about blowing bubbles for kids, for example, say I've got a sick three-year-old that's been brought in by their parents to the, to the PEDS emergency department. Bubble blowing is something that every kid loves. But if I blow bubbles to a child, the way that they react to that tells me a lot about their state and their illness at this one moment. So if I blow bubbles at a child and they were crying because they've got a fever and they're miserable and they're up late and everyone's and they're cranky and they've got the flu or whatever, they were crying before, but as soon as I start blowing bubbles, they stop what they're doing, they turn around, they smile, they move, they'll walk, whereas previously they've just been cuddling mum and dad and they won't walk. They'll reach out for the bubbles with both hands, one or the other, which tells me about their like their motor state and what they can do physically. They'll run across the room. They might turn around and interact with their parents again. And all of that is a tells me clinically about what state that child's in, which is very different to a child who I blow bubbles at who just sits there kind of wanly in mum and dad's arms and doesn't move, doesn't mm. look at the bubbles, doesn't change the way that they're acting and doesn't. And that kid is sick. There's a difference between crying and unwell. And yeah. that's like a huge part of pediatrics. In a moment, I ask Daniel what a day on the unit looks like. But before that, he talks more about the scale that is within prematurity. So we have a better understanding of what exactly his job encompasses. There's like babies and then there's prematurity and there's prem babies. And I think people always think of like any prem baby all gets like lumped in the same kind of category of, of infant. But our specialty deals almost exclusively with prematurity. And the one thing I can tell you is that it is a huge spectrum. So like when you are dealing with a 36-week premature baby who just has maybe like a half a day's worth of trouble keeping their blood sugar level up or needs a day or two to get their temperature regulation sorted or runs into a little bit of jaundice but is effectively sorted within a day or two and can go home if they're fully suck feeding – that is incredibly different and worlds apart from a 
450-gram, 24-week infant that needs long-term ventilation, huge amount of steroids to get them off the ventilator, runs into trouble with their eyes and their bones and their skin and their brain because they're so much more predisposed to bleeds on the brain. The complexity of managing an extreme premature infant, and you do it over the course of several months, is so different to what's involved in looking after a a just a little bit premature baby. But I think the perception, or it's easy for the kind of lay person to not really understand the the difference between the two and to see how much of a spectrum there really is. Two follow-up questions. Hear me. What is jaundice? Great question. Jaundice is when, you know, when babies go a bit yellow, um, it's a breakdown product of the red blood cells and the chemical that comes from that breakdown process or bilirubin gets deposited on the skin and on the eyes. And in the worst, worst case scenario, which is why we take it so seriously with screening tests and early treatment, it can get irreversibly deposited in the brain, leading to brain damage. So we take it very seriously. How do you treat it? Another great question. You (laughs) treat it with phototherapy, which is blue light or UV light, which transforms the chemical into an easily excreted version. And so it can be peed out effectively. Cool. There's other things that you do, but that's like yeah, the, the, main that's one. the main treatment. And mm. the other follow-up question I had is the premature babies that are really, really quite premature, yeah. and you said there's months of care that they need, yeah. do they essentially live at the hospital the whole time? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll see the so same baby for months. Absolutely. And some of them don't survive. So you see them for a, you may see them only for a short amount of time, but but. In general, we have amazing survival rates for extreme prematurity in Australia. And this is a, these are babies who we, as a unit, will have been looking after for like four months straight, every minute of every hour of every day. And so when they go home, that's a huge milestone. And like we are all very invested in that process. And so it's really interesting actually to watch them as they go through that. Say you take an extreme prem baby that's born and, and has a relatively stable course and ends up going home they'll start their journey up in the intensive care part of the unit which is the really high acuity very high nurse to patient ratio and really intense lots of machines lots of monitors lots of interventions to kind of keep them alive and then over the course of weeks as they grow and they stabilize and they put on a bit of weight and they are starting to get fed by mouth instead of through a drip they will kind of graduate to the like middle of the road part of the unit and so you'll see oh like so and so has graduated to hdu which is the high dependency unit and like that's a big milestone for them and then finally they'll graduate to the special care nursery end of the unit and for them to have graduated to that level of care which is effectively just feeding and growing we call it is a huge milestone and so it's not only for the parents who are obviously ecstatic as all of those milestones occur and they're big milestones whether it's their 100 day anniversary in the unit or them getting over a kilo or them having their first breastfeed or their drip coming out and them having all like all feeding through gut feeding effectively all of those things are milestones not just for the parents, but also for us as the unit that has provided their care. And so when these families go home after hundreds and hundreds of days with us, it's a really big deal for both them and for us. And often you'll find these families will come back with their two, three, four, five-year-olds and parade them around the unit really excitedly. And we are obviously thrilled to see them because it's really affirming for what we do and the care that we give. I did tell you I learned a lot, and I really did. 
Now I asked Daniel what a day at work looks like for him. Obviously, no day is the same. Yes, no day is the same. And I was joking to someone the other day, like doctors love whinging about how busy they are. But equally, we love whinging to each other about how bored we get on a day where there's not much to do. Hasten to add that those days are pretty rare. I was laughing that like we whinge when there's not enough to do and we whinge when there's too much to do. But the actual perfect day where you've had exactly the right amount of time to like do all your jobs, also get a coffee, sit down and actually eat properly and then go home at a reasonable hour, that like bracket of perfection is like incredibly narrow and unrealistic to where we really expect that that will happen. So I, we're, we're overly critical of our days. But what does a normal day look like? It depends on the job and depends on the day, but I guess a day in neonates could entail anything from you rock up at work, you have a kind of huddle at the, the beginning of the day in NICU to see what's going on and see kind of what the, what the developments and admissions to the unit overnight were, any deteriorations on the unit and particularly unwell patients and any that we expect to be delivered in the next 12 hours because we are, and what again, one of the great things about neonates is that you're constantly interacting with the obstetrics team and the anesthetics team as a real kind of unit because they are the ones who are delivering the high-risk babies and kind of handing them to you to look after. Then we'll split up and kind of ward rounds, a ward round where you kind of go around all of your patients and see what's happened and what their progress is and what they need and and make plans for the day. You'll do any jobs that need doing. You'll do procedures that need doing. So maybe like a drip has fallen out and needs to be recited or a patient needs a lumbar puncture or they need what we call a long line, which is a particularly fiddly procedure to get a a kind of permanent drip into them to give them antibiotics or medication for a longer period of time. We might organize scans or x-rays and then look at them. You might need There'll be deliveries at the same time, so you might need to attend a, a delivery of a, either a normal baby, a term baby, or a particularly premature baby, and that ranges from a kind of 36 weeks, full term being 40 weeks, so 36 weeks is almost term, all the way down to a 23-weeker, which is extremely premature and, and needs a lot of resuscitation and work from the get-go. Then you might have teaching sessions, so we have a whole range of different education sessions that are run by different departments. Somewhere in there, you'll try and squeeze in lunch if you can, but like, it's more likely that you'll be shuffling it in during one of those other bits. And then all the while, you're also triaging tons of pages and nurse calls and other ED calls or paperwork things or emails and meetings and that kind of stuff. Obviously, what you do is super important and mm. literally impacts lives on a daily basis. Why is what you do important to you specifically, personally? That is a great question. I think medicine, some people are passionate about a particular issue and have been their whole lives. And many people in medicine fall into an area that they are drawn to or are interested in or they they choose a specialty because they don't like any of the other specialties. I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think as I discovered paediatrics, I fell in love with it immediately. As I discovered neonates, I was also immediately drawn to it. I think it's a beautiful way to work with families in the long term. You get a a really long-term relationship with some of your extreme prem families and working with them in a really vulnerable state and helping kind of get them through that is really amazing. It's an amazing opportunity to work with a with a team. Often doctors are kind of sole practitioners, whereas 
Uh, neonatology is a real team-based specialty. So I've learned, I mean, I always tell people I've learned more from the social worker at the Royal Women's NICU than I have from any other single individual clinician. And you get to work with amazing nurses and allied health people and families who you learn a lot from. What are the hardest parts? I imagine a job like yours isn't always easy. There's got to be some really tough bits. Uh, That's definitely true. I think like there's tough bits about being a doctor and then there's tough bits about being a NICU doctor. I think being a doctor is in many ways exhausting. And when you've chosen a specialty that involves shift work, you've kind of set yourself up for a life of missing weekends and dinners and family events and all of that. So those kind of things are hard, but not unrewarded, I guess, in terms mm-hmm. of what we do. In terms of neonatal medicine, I think it is, look, at the end of the day, you've got babies that are sick and babies that die. And that is not an easy thing to deal with. I think doctors are really good at steeling themselves against death and disease because that is what we are surrounded with. And if we couldn't do that, if we weren't able to emotionally distance ourselves from the pain and suffering of our patients in some way, we would never be able to do our job because we would be swallowed by the emotion of the job. Having said that, for unknown reasons, there will sometimes be a patient or a family for no really good reason that just hits you. And either like the mum reminds you of your own mum or the baby triggers something that happened to a friend of yours that was particularly traumatic or you had a family member who went through something like this and whatever. So for whatever reason, sometimes babies being sick and dying will hit you and that is hard. It's as hard for us as doctors as it is for any other health professional who deals with death and dying on a regular basis. I think you just need a good support network both around you and within the neonatal ICU and that. I'm lucky that we have a fantastic one where I work. But yeah, I think that, that's probably the, the most glaringly obvious challenging thing about the work that we do. But equally, I mean, there's always your own sense of not knowing enough, not being good enough, not having enough skills. If it's me on my self-doubt. own in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. Self-doubt mm-hmm. is a great thing. Most doctors are plagued with self-doubt. I think most humans. Skills. Yeah. And true. then it just becomes way more high pressure when it has to do with someone else's literal life. And that's... Hard. That's the challenge of medicine in general. The stakes are high. Is there a mental health support system at the hospital you work in? Yeah, definitely. I think all hospitals have got some kind of mental health support if you look for it. I think we're pretty good at looking out for each other as well. We know that we work in a high stakes. And, and again, because it's an intensive care unit, as the name suggests, it can be intense. And when it's intense, you know that people are going to feel the intensity of it. And so we're good at looking out for each other, both across the medical nursing and allied health kind of spectrum we all like we have mentors in place we have both kind of immediate superior and then consultant mentors who are who check in on us regularly and then there's always formal mental health support networks through the hospital that you can access if you need which is good to be honest most often the most helpful is your friends who might not be working at the same place that you are but like for example my study group who got me through exams are the most helpful in terms of just debriefing about stuff that's gone on at work because they get it they're doing the same thing exactly that's amazing same level they get what you're doing they've been through that kind of thing and they know that what you need is just an ear more often than not it really isn't an easy job and before daniel told me about why he does it day in and day out he told me more about specific situations that make his job especially tough reminder this episode deals with issues of extreme prematurity high-level hospital care, and death and disability in children. So please switch off if it isn't for you. 
So I think you're right. I think there's there there are days where you are just like, wow, that was devastating. So for example, one of the things that we deal with not infrequently in, in the NICU is babies that have what we call hypoxic brain injury, which is where the blood supply has been cut off to them during the delivery process at some point. And as a result, they haven't had the required oxygen to the brain that they need. And so there's been significant brain damage. And that can happen for a number of reasons. So you might have heard of cord prolapse or or placental problems, or those kind of things. There's lots of different reasons why a baby might have that kind of injury, but that injury is a spectrum. And at the severe end of the spectrum, you're looking at a baby who's got significant and life-changing brain damage, who's requiring a lot of life support to keep them alive, and who often you might need to think about what we call redirecting care, which is where, in actual fact, the most merciful thing to do for this patient and family is to take the breathing tube out, turn the life support machines off, and let them pass away. Because instead, if you do manage to get them through the process, which there's no guarantee of in some of the really severe cases, the life that they're looking at is a significantly difficult one, both for them if they're even aware of their surroundings and certainly for their parents. And so having those kind of conversations with parents about the outlook for their child, whether or not they think they would like to redirect care or what we call palliate the child, is an incredibly difficult one. Many neonatologists would say that that is one of the most difficult things that they have to do in the specialty, is have that kind of conversation. So why does Daniel do what he does? And so why do I do it? I mean, certainly I should hasten to add that I'm not an experienced neonatologist. I'm a very junior trainee in the area. It speaks to why you do pediatrics in general, which is kids are going to be sick. Babies are going to be born prem and they're going to die or not die or be sick or not be sick. Whether you decide to come to work or not doesn't change whether that will happen. And so they might as well be cared for by a doctor who is interested in their well-being, caring about their family and wants to help them and their family move through that period in their life in a supportive way rather than not. I mean, that's certainly why I do it. Whether I am or am not going to do neonates, those babies are still going to exist. So I might as well crack on and do something. What would you tell someone who was thinking about becoming a doctor? That's a great question. You'll find that people's answers to that question vary depending on their stage of their career. So I think early on, and certainly during medical school, people are very idealistic and excited about medicine and like you're entering this noble healing profession and it's amazing and and such a wonderful opportunity. I think consultants who are further on and, and very experienced in their career have the benefit of years and years of experience and feeling like mastery of their craft. And and that's a really satisfying feeling. I think it's very easy for people in my level, like mid or early trainee level people to feel overwhelmed by the workload, the expectations, the you're you're now at a point where you know enough that there's a lot expected of you, but you, you haven't got the years of experience to be a consultant. And so that's pretty exhausting. And it's a period of your career where you face the most, you'll see the most burnout happens at this point, I think. I am very happy to say that I don't feel that way particularly. I still really enjoy what I do and and enjoy going to work and I'm lucky to have found a specialty that really kind of speaks to me. So I think having said all that, if someone asked me what whether they should do medicine, I would say think long and hard about why you want to do it. If you're wanting to do it because of the money, I couldn't advise you more strongly against it because that will not motivate you to have a happy and fulfilling career. If you're doing it for prestige, it's going to be a very long time until you get any of that. 
And so, again, not worth it. <laughs> but if you're doing it because you want to work with people and you don't mind like slogging it and you are willing to commit to a lifetime of learning and the number of ongoing exams and study that you have to do and the amount of time that you will spend studying before you become an actual expert in any specialty is very long. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're willing to do that and you are excited or you have a particular passion area within it, then absolutely, I would never turn people away. It's a very rewarding profession in many ways if you're willing to accept that, like, you'll get vomited on. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly um, peds is good like that. It's very humbling because, like, you know, you're going to get peed on by a baby when you examine them and you're going to get vomited on by a baby when you're in ED. And you're, there's nothing more humbling than sitting on the ground, like, cross-legged playing with blocks to examine a three-year-old. Certainly, people going to pediatrics need to understand that, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, specifically, pediatrics, what would you yeah. say? You would say, be prepared for vomit. Be prepared for vomit, yes. <laughs> be prepared for vomit, be prepared for wee. Um, <laughs> bring your bubbles. Yeah. And <laughs> great, great tip. And remember that a lot of your work will be with parents. Do you think that you'll be doing this forever? I would absolutely like to be doing some element of clinical medicine forever. I mean, I don't know what forever is, but like certainly for the course of my professional career. I also have a pretty strong interest in kind of the, the more administrative side of healthcare and systems and hospitals and, and how it all works behind the scenes. And so I envisage that part of my career will go in that direction as well. Um, but I certainly am not leaving clinical medicine anytime soon. It's incredibly rewarding and a, and a, a wonderful way to spend your day when you're not getting peed on. I told Daniel that I thought our chat was great. And he said, I bet you tell that to all your guests. Here's a final thought from Dr. Daniel Dorovich. Neonates is fun because you see lots of babies, but equally, not all babies are cute, despite what all their parents think about them. <laughs> and I find myself in an amusing situation where I'll often, so I just won't say anything, but if there is a cute baby, then I always tell the parents that their baby is particularly cute. And then they always say to me, oh, I bet you say that to all the parents, which I'm thrilled to tell them that I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to put that in? That's so funny. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'd like to thank Dr. Daniel Dorovich for being on the show. It's been a really eye-opening conversation, and I truly appreciate him taking the time to talk about the constructive play his job involves, plus why even though it's tough, he does it anyway. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And if you listen every week, thank you extra. If you love the show, I would really appreciate you heading to Apple Podcasts and giving it a five-star rating. Plus, maybe you could share it around your office or your friendship group. I'd love for even more people to hear from the fantastic guests I have each week. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, get in touch. Email howdoyoudothat at joy.org.au. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.